Well, we're in Romans chapter 7, and thrilled to get to this section of Scripture. I've been waiting for a long time, and it was on my mind, the, and it's this passage that in this section kind of brings it out, that the Christian life is a, a life of, um, of complexity, a, a life of contrasts. Because we can aptly describe the Christian life like this, that we are not under the law, but we are free to keep the law. We are not under the law. We're not under the laws as a source of righteousness, nor, un- nor are we under the law in fear of condemnation. And yet, in Christ Jesus, we fulfill the law. We keep the law. This seeming contradiction seeming dualism, is really the struggle that we have in trying to describe the Christian life and the walk of sanctification and the work of God within us. And so I'm thrilled for us to get to Romans chapter 7 and we start to unfold the principles that Paul brings out here in chapter 7 and move into chapter 8. This is an important study for us. I've been thinking as a Christian, as a believer, uh, about the law for a long time. And I know that there are errors on either side. We can err on the side of legalism, that we go back to the law to create a source of rules and regulations for us to keep to try to attain a righteousness whereby we would be pleasing to God. Or we can err on the other side, antinomianism. Antinomian comes from the word anti, it's against. Nomianism is from the Greek word namos, law. It means against the law or lawlessness. So you err on either side of legalism or lawlessness. And right in the middle is the biblical past. And I trust as we navigate through Paul's teaching here, through chapter 6, 7, and 8, that we would have a proper gospel-centered perspective of the law of Christ, the law of love, the, the work of God, and our relationship to not only God's present working, but even as he's worked through all of scriptures. So we got a very careful road for us to walk ahead to get through these themes. But I remember my first exposure to the topic of the law and its work. I had just listened to an apologist by the name of Greg Bonson. And Greg Bonson, in a classic debate uh, entitled The Great Debate with Bonson, and he he debated an atheist by the name of Gordon Stein. The Bonson-Stein debate was carried out in a public forum at a uh, public university in California. And in it, Bonson argued from a presuppositional apologetic. He had argued, presupposing the existence of God, from that vantage point, then all the world can make sense, how we can have laws of logic and uh, laws of morality and mathematics and grammar. He can, the existence of these laws are evidence for a God. And he, he presupposes the existence of God and then argues for those things. Stein, of course, rejects that, and so the whole debate goes. It's a great debate in regards to how the Christian worldview understands the world around and the impossibility of the contrary. In fact, that's what Bonson argues. He argues from, you need my worldview, every other worldview is impossible to keep, so you have to borrow from mine. 
And from that whole debate, it was, a, again, in a, a fundamental uh, moment in my early Christian life. I loved to listen to Bonson. He actually died at a fairly young age. I think he was like 48, so I got two more years to catch up to him. Um, but there, he died at a young age, but it was a brilliant mind. So I investigated Bonson. I started saying, all right, if he did this, there must be some other good resources of his. And Bonson was one who believed and taught a doctrine called theonomy. Theonomy is the belief of God's rule and reign. And he believed that we should reinstitute the reign of God on earth. He was part of a group called Christian Reconstructionists, which, by the way, the very idea is gaining steam today. Over the last couple of years, with uh, all that's been going on in the world, with uh, you know the rise of you know woke agenda, the rise of CRT, the rise of what we see, the political climate around us, there are others coming along saying we need to bring order. And what's the best way to bring order is God's rule. So they're introducing the rule of God. Well, Theonomists came along, and Theonomists said we can set up the rule of God, the reign of God. And that's what we're going to do. Hand in hand with theonomy became postmillennialism. And postmillennialism was the belief that we will bring in the kingdom of God. We will restore everyone to righteousness. We're going to reestablish the righteous reign of God among the people. We'll set up God's kingdom. We'll set up the kingdom of Christ. We will make people holy. We'll go spread the gospel throughout the world. People will become increasingly more Christian. The world will get set up in order. And then Christ will come and sit on his throne. So this was Incomes Theonomy. Theonomy says, all right, the best way to have the rule of God is to institute the law of God. And so Theonomists would go back and say, we should reinstitute the whole law of God. We reinstitute everything that Moses commanded. We reinstitute today, and we follow the, the Ten Commandments. We follow the moral law. We follow the law of Moses. And they seek to set up. In fact, in this... Um, Greg Bonson and Gary North wrote a book defending theonomy. And in their defense of theonomy, not only did they seek to set up the commands of God, they also seek to set up the punishments for violating the law of God. I thought it was rather humorous if they didn't actually believe it, but here is the defense for stoning. Think about if you violated the law of God, they would defend that we should go back and stone somebody who uh, violated the law of God. Imagine the change of church discipline if, uh, you know, we instituted stoning. But here is their argument. Their argument were, was this, that rocks are everywhere. I mean, we can go out in the parking lot. We can find a few rocks. They're everywhere. And rocks are cheap. So it's not going to cost us a lot to introduce this. And they're effective. You know, so everywhere, cheap and effective. I mean, I can't fault the logic. Everything about it is right in logic. But doctrinally, I struggle applying it, especially in light of Paul's comments here in the book of Romans. When Paul says, we are not under law, but under grace. And that we've been freed from the law. And that we're dead to the law. So understanding whatever it is that we are, it certainly isn't reintroducing what the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law was. So that set me on my journey as a young Christian thinking through these things. And if you continue on that journey, everybody has a, a, an understanding of how to view the law. I mean, I would have uh, considered myself 
Early on in my own Christian journey, a uh, Reformed Baptist. And good Reformed Baptists, we hold to the 1689. And if you go to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, you're going to see a strong emphasis on the law in there and the work of the law, the moral aspect of the law ruling in the Christian life. But you might even look at the law through the lens of a, of a covenantalist. That the church is the Israel of God. And by the way, we'll get to that in Romans chapter 9, so just hold on to the question. But the covenantalist looks at the church as the continuation of Israel. And therefore, they would look at the Old Testament law as being applicable because we are the Israel of God. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, would look at that and say, well, no, the law for Moses, uh, the law was for Israel. The law from Moses was for Israel. And when Christ came, he, he fulfilled the law. He completed it. We're under something new. We're under the law of Christ, the law of love. And so we are under something completely different. These are the various arguments, the various ways in which people try to understand the rule and work of the law in the life of the believer. And it is important for us to be able to navigate through this because it's going to influence how we respond to the scriptures, what we look to for the scriptures. For example, if you were taking the the dispensational view of the law, you would tend to uh, struggle with looking back in the Old Testament because, well, that was for Israel. They do. They certainly go back. They certainly go to the Ten Commandments. Just makes me wonder why they do. And if you are the covenantalist, you're going to be inclined to look at New Testament priority and read New Testament back into the Old Testament. All kinds of, again, ways in which our theology shapes our perspective. What we want to do here is understand the Christian relationship to the law as Paul is unfolding and defending his gospel not necessarily concerned where this lands us, but much more concerned with what did the Apostle Paul teach so we understand what our perspective ought to be when we consider gospel and law. This is what Paul unfolds here. He begins to teach us in this section of Scripture, he is defending the law. It's a natural question at this point. Because he had stated already uh, back in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5 when he says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. The purpose of the law was to increase the transgression. It exposed sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. To which then Paul goes in and defends grace. Chapter 6 is a defense of grace. Chapter 6 is a defense of how grace leads us to live a new life in Christ and live under the, the work of grace that we live in Christ and for Him. And as we saw last couple of weeks, from 15 to 23, we have a new master. Grace of God has set us free to be under a new master. The master is righteousness. This righteousness reigns within us now. But then the question would be, all right, if the law only stirred up sin and we're not under the law anymore, then the law must be useless. It must have no purpose. And this is where you need to understand the historical setting because maybe you and I would be tempted to say, yeah, it's useless to us. We don't need it anymore. But that would not be a very profitable argument for the Apostle Paul who's attempting to win over his Jewish brethren Particularly chapters 9, 10, and 11 demonstrates that when he demonstrates the work of God among Israel. And again, we will punt those questions to that time. But it was a concern of the Apostle Paul. 
What was God's work among his people, the Israelites? What is our understanding of the gospel? What is our understanding of the law? I can't just write it off. In fact, any religious Jew at this time would think and watch very carefully how Paul would treat Moses and the law of Moses. Is Paul going to write it off? Is Paul going to disregard it? Is Paul going to trample the law? Is he going to, uh, to minimize it? Because if he trampled Moses, then he was going against our traditions and immediately he'd be written off. The Jews during this time would have evaluated the teaching of Paul against the law of Moses. They did that to Jesus. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22 just to set this up. I want you to see that, again, rightly so. If we were going to measure the truthfulness of any idea, we must take them back to the Scriptures to verify if they're teaching in line with the Scriptures. This is exactly what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was in uh, his Passion Week, his final week on earth, and he'd already entered into Jerusalem and turned over the money tables and driven out the money changers. The next day, he is being tested by the various religious elite. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40, a lawyer comes to Christ. Notice verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. And notice what he asked him. He said to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So now here's the test. All right, you know Moses' writings. So in the, the law there, the article, the, indicating a particular body of truths, this is particularly the, the commands of Moses. What is the greatest commandment of Moses? By this time, the Jews had actually developed, developed a very sophisticated system whereby they numbered every one of the commands and they gave a number, order, of priority, and weight to it. So a higher number, a higher weight. So they wanted to see how he was going to think through this. To which Jesus responded in this way, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. He summarizes all that Moses taught in these two Commandments, love God, love your neighbor. By verse 46, it completely silenced them. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The test and the approval. As to just show you, in this time, there was a, an open evaluation of anyone who's coming along teaching a message. They had to be consistent with the Mosaic Law. They had to honor it. They couldn't dishonor the Mosaic Law. I'll turn back to Romans chapter 7. Whatever we do, 
heading into this text, and however we work through it, we don't want to dishonor the law of God. Now I even say that phrase, the law of God, and there are so many things I could mean by that. I could mean the Ten Commandments. I could mean all the commandments of Moses found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Or I could mean all the scriptures. That is, that's how the psalmist uses the law, referring to the scriptures. And so this adds to the complexity of the doctrine of the law. What are we actually referring to? And I believe when you begin to look at the context, which you'll see regularly coming out is this. When it refers to all of scriptures, it's usually just law. So you look back into Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For you are not under law, but under grace. This is the idea. You're not under commandments. You're not under just indirect all scripture. You're under grace. But then you come into chapter 7, and notice the definite article, chapter 7, verse 1, that the law has jurisdiction over a person. And notice verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. Definite article before the law. This is referring particularly to the commands of Moses. So all this to say is that context indicates to us exactly what is in mind of the author when he is writing this. So what Paul is doing here is that he is defending a proper perspective of the law. The law isn't a waste. The law, the law isn't useless. But the law doesn't rule over the believer the same way it rules over the unbeliever. I can say it like this and defend it here from what Paul is going to say. The law is for the lawless. The law is for the unbeliever. The law, the commands of God, are for those who are in rebellion against God. Because the law is a path of righteousness, that if you follow it, you would be righteous, is also a revelation of condemnation, for one does not keep it, they are under the righteous judgment of God. The law is for the unrighteous and the unbeliever. And as we're going to see, by the way, I'll just give you the end so you see the whole picture. Turn over to chapter 8, and notice verse 2 through 4. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Paul's saying here's a competing law. We have the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. We have the law of spirit of life in us. Verse 3, for what the law, now here's the commandments of God, the rule of Moses, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's the key. We do not live under the law, but we keep the law. We do not live under the rule of the law, 
And we don't live under the fear of punishment from the law, but we fulfill the whole law in Christ Jesus. That is riches of God's gospel. Now, you'll hear this over and over for the next few weeks to make this clear to you. I want to start to unfold how Paul argues this. That's the big picture, the summary of the whole discussion. Paul is not coming along to dishonor the law. That's why even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. I'm not removing this. I'm not abrogating this. I'm fulfilling it all. In fact, even notice verse 12, Paul says of the law, the law is holy. This is Romans seven twelve. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He is upholding the honor of the law. It's holy, righteous, and good. So if this law, which is holy and righteous and good, is a source of death for us, what is our relationship to it? Again, the average person today is just get rid of it. Move on. But that's not Paul, and certainly not in his context, and it's not his perspective. So to gain his perspective, let's just look at these first six verses of Romans chapter 7. What he gives us here are three truths. He gives us, first of all, the reign of the law. We see that in verses 1 through 3, the reign of the law. Then he gives us the deliverance of the believer. That's verse 4. The believer is delivered. And then, verse 5 and 6, he contrasts the condition of the unbeliever and the believer. So you have the contrasting condition of believer and unbeliever, the deliverance of the believer, and the reign of the law. That is this section. So let's just work our way through this. The first principle, the reign of the law, verses 1 through 3. Here's what he says. Or do you not know, brethren, For I am speaking to those who know the law. But the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. What Paul establishes here, first of all, is the reign of the law. What is the jurisdiction of the law? Now, it's important for us to grasp this principle as he starts. He identifies his audience. Notice, or do you not know brethren? And the question would be, who are the brethren there? He clarifies it, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Who are the brethren who know the law? Well, obviously it would be Jews. They're the ones who were given the law. They're the ones who know the law. But it's important to see this, that Paul regularly changes gears as to what audience he's talking to in the book of Romans. I'll show you this. Start with, let's go back to chapter 1. Let me just show you a few times what Paul does this. Romans chapter 1, in verse 7, he identifies here that he is speaking to the whole church. Notice, to all, he is writing, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? He's writing to all the saints in Rome. He is to all believers there, everyone who's embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off by this greeting to all. From there, he unfolds his personal ministry. He talks about the work of the gospel, why he's not ashamed of it, what the gospel reveals. Well, then he goes into chapter 2. And from chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 16, he speaks to Jews and Gentiles alike. Notice chapter 2 in verse 10, uh, or you can in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so from chapter 2, 1 through 16, he's speaking generally to all Jew and Gentile alike, not just believers, but everyone out there. And you're only in one of the two categories. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. So he's speaking to all people to which he defends in that section the law of God written on the heart. But notice 2.17. From 2.17, he narrows his focus down. Notice, but if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. This is the Jew. The one who has received from God the law and the prophets, the one who walked in the traditions and the customs, he narrows and he starts to speak to them and he starts to, you remember in that context, say, you're not a Jew outwardly, but you're a Jew inwardly, the work of God in the heart. He continues speaking to the Jews into chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit? He's saying, all right, if my Jewish customs and traditions didn't profit me anything, then what's the benefit of even being a Jew in the first place? To which he answers that. He, great in every respect, verse 2. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he goes on and defends God's work among the Jews. So from 3.1 through 3.20, he speaks specifically to Jews and addresses, again, the fallenness of man, etc. Well, 321, through chapter 6 and verse 23, he changes gears, and now he talks about talks to those who have been saved by grace through faith. Anyone who's embraced the gospel, that's what he says in 321, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, in Christ Jesus, notice, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. He's now referring to everyone who believes. And he defends the gospel. He defends justification by grace through faith alone. He defends it from the Old Testament. He defends in chapter 5 the superiority of Christ against Adam. He then defends the work of the gospel in the life of the believer in chapter 6. And now we come to chapter 7. And now in chapter 7... He switches gears again. Do you not know, brethren, for now I'm speaking to those who know the law. Switches gears back to the one who is under the law. By the way, he does this again in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's asking the very question that would have been on the heart of the Jew when Paul is refuting the law or he's giving an explanation for what the believer's relationship is to the law and the believer is no longer under law. The question would be in the Jew's mind, then is it the law is a problem? Well, he asked that in verse 7. He asked it as well in verse 13. 
Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? In you know, all of this, Paul is directing his arguments to a particular audience. That is essential for us to catch. Now, with all that history, let's actually get into his argument. His argument is rather simple. The law reigns as long as somebody is alive. Once somebody's dead, they're no longer under the law. So when you die, live it up. Right? The law, once you're dead to it, that you are not under the rule of law any longer. And then he illustrates it, a rather simple illustration. There is a woman who is married, and while she is bound to her husband in life, and they're married, if she left her husband and married another man, she would be an adulteress. But if he died, she is freed from the law. She could marry somebody else, and she would be free to remarry. She wouldn't be an adulteress because the law only reigns while one is alive. That principle is simple enough. And so Paul establishes in that principle the jurisdiction of the law. The law reigns over the living, those who are alive. By the way, just a little sub-note here. There are many, there are some who I teach in 1 Timothy 3 2, the phrase of an elder qualification being the husband of one wife. And they would conclude as a husband of one wife, it means that a husband, uh, an elder could never be remarried even if the wife had died because it's always to be married to one woman. And yet clearly here, Romans 7 would indicate once the wife has passed, He is freed up. He is no longer under the law. He is not violating this one-woman-man idea. But that's a side argument. We can debate that some other time. But that's first principle then. First principle, jurisdiction of the law is while one is alive. Second principle that Paul brings out here, the believer is delivered from the law. Notice verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he establishes the first principle, the law only rules while one is alive, and then he establishes the second principle, in Christ you die. In Christ and through Christ. Notice this phrase here. You also were made to die through the law, or die to the law through the body of Christ. Made to die there is in a passive voice, meaning the action of the verb is done to us. It's something outside of us being done to us. You were made to die to the law. And then the source through Jesus Christ. It's through Christ we died. Those who've been born again, those who've been united to Christ, have been made to die to the law. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. We are delivered from being under the law because we have been joined to Jesus Christ. And that's why that phrase there, through the body of Christ, is important. Because we have been joined to Christ and united to him, we have been Removed from being under the rule of law, we're now under the rule of Christ, the rule of grace, the rule of his spirit, the rule, the spirit of the law of life. 
because we've been joined to Christ. We've been joined to another. So this is the second principle that what Paul's saying is that the law isn't abolished. The law still rules. It just doesn't rule over the Christian because the Christian has died and been joined to Christ. And you think at that moment, all right, we've been joined to Christ. We're dead. This means this is where we get to live it up, right? And that's what he says in verse 4. Actually, why have we been raised up with Christ? He was raised from the dead. Notice, in order that we might bear fruit to God. We've been joined to Christ for a reason now. The reason we've been joined to Christ is now we get to bear fruit through the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear fruit to God. We live for the glory of God now because we're not under the law. We're under Christ, and it's through Christ that we're alive now. And now we're free not to live in sinfulness, not to live in unrighteousness. We are free to bear fruit for God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we're free to live in our newness of life. In Christ, we're free to demonstrate our union with Christ. In Christ, we are free to show our new life. In Christ, we are free to live in the fruit of newness of life. We are free of the fear of condemnation. We are free to uh, no longer have to seek to earn righteousness. We have righteousness in Christ. We are free to reflect the glory of God because we've died. We've died to our former life. You've died to being under the law. We are now alive in Christ. That leads us to the final point that Paul makes then. The contrasting conditions between the believer and the unbeliever in verses 5 and 6. This is really, really helpful here because I believe that what Paul ends up doing here is now unfolding for us his argument through the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, and I'll show that to you. Contrasting conditions, notice. Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The contrasting conditions now of the believer and the unbeliever. First, he focuses on the unbeliever. And these are, again, contrasts. The unbeliever is described in verse 5. The believer is described in verse 6. The condition of the unbeliever and the believer Paul puts side by side here, and he describes it for a while, but now. And he speaks even in the past tense. They were, we were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit to death. But now we have been released. We have died to that which we were bound. We now serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. These contrasts. So first, the unbeliever. Notice verse 5, there are four characteristics of the unbeliever in verse 5. The unbeliever is in the flesh. See that there? While we were in the flesh. And we were in unbelief when we were in this state. We were ruled by sinful passions. And the third characteristic, not only was the unbeliever in the flesh ruled by sinful passions, those sinful passions were stirred up by the law. 
Every time the law came, it aroused more, more sin. The law only provoked and increased. And again, that's exactly what Paul said back in Romans 5 and verse 20 when he says there, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. It's consistent. The law came to stir up evil. To which then the fourth characteristic, these passions were at work in the members of our body. So we were in the flesh, we were controlled by sinful passions, these passions were excited by the law, and it bore fruit in rebellion. We actually acted out those evil deeds. That is the condition of the unbeliever. The unbeliever, anyone who is not in Christ, is living in a position where they are ruled by the flesh, they are ruled by sinful passions, and whenever righteousness comes, they, they fight against it. They press against it. Only The standard of righteousness only irritates them and causes more evil, to which then they walk in unrighteousness. Key here, and I want you to see, is the phrase in verse 5, for while. Two, two subjunctives, two subordinating subjunctives, describing here even a time, for while, and then the verb tenses, past tense, you were aroused, were at work in the members, is past tense referring to a former life, a former time. Paul speaks of this, this past condition for while we were in this place. We were in this fallen condition. This was the unbelieving. And that's why, again, uh, he is speaking to the Jew here, the converted Jew at this moment, speaking about this is what your condition was before you believed, but now. Now we come to the second half of this, the but now indication, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We're free. Our former life was that being under the slavery of the flesh. Our former life was under the rule of sinful passions, that whenever the passions came and they demanded us to act, we gave in to those passions. And whenever those passions were confronted by the law, it only created more passions, and we walked in rebellion. That was the former life. But now, but the conjunction with then the adverb now, now is the time reference. At this moment, now, he's saying, now what? And he gives here a description of the believer, and he gives three qualities of the believer. What are we? We have been released from the law, he says. That is to say, we're no longer under the law's rule. The law is no longer a source we go to to try to gain righteousness. And we're not under the law in fear of its condemnation. We have been released from the law. Why? Verse 6, he continues, the second aspect, because we have died to it. We have died to the law. We died to that thing that we were bound to. We are dead and the law no longer rules over us. The law which reveals the path of righteousness, the law which, if kept, would gain righteousness, if you kept it perfectly, would prove you to be righteous. When you tried, you actually found you couldn't keep it. 
Therefore, you are under condemnation. We are free from that. We have died to it. The third characteristic of the believer then is we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We live and walk in the spirit of God. Spirit rules in us. Spirit reigns and directs. We walk in newness of life in the spirit of God, in Christ Jesus. So we can say it like this. We live in holiness not because we live under the demands of the law, but because we live by this Holy Spirit who leads us into holiness. We live for holiness not because we're trying to obtain a righteousness, but because we follow the righteousness of God. Grace has set us free to do this. Now let me show you. This becomes Paul's argument through the rest of Romans 7. 7 through 25, Paul is going to describe the work of the law in the unregenerate person. He's going to defend the law. He's going to defend its usefulness. He's going to defend defend the work of the law and one who has no power to keep it. But then you come to chapter 8, and notice chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is, and notice, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes to the present tense, those who are in Christ, those who are now in Christ, there is no condemnation. He's going to contrast these two conditions. Life without the Spirit, life with the Spirit. Life under the law, the life under the rule of God, the rule of Christ. It's going to show the complete inability of the law to save and the ability of the Spirit to help us keep the law, fulfill the law. The point is, as believers, we no longer look to the law as a path Uh, to make us righteous. Nor do we fear the law as a source of condemnation because we have fallen short, because that condemnation has been satisfied in Christ Jesus. Instead, we have died, and we are alive in Christ, and now in Christ we fulfill the law. Fulfill it on one hand, because his righteousness has been credited to us, so our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees because his righteousness is credited to us. But also we fulfill the law because the Spirit of God leads us to keep it. That's exactly what we're going to see in chapter 8. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We're going to see that the work of God's Spirit point then is Paul comes here is to defend the law isn't a waste the law isn't uh, useless the law hasn't been removed out of the way the law in fact is even operating today but the law is for the lawless the law is for the rebellious the law is for the unrighteous because it reveals their unrighteousness and the law reveals the, the just condemnation upon God, of God upon anyone who rebels. The law is useful. The law is holy, just, and good. It's just not our master. It's not our master. It's not our ruler. Christ is our ruler. 
The grace of God found in Christ Jesus, the work of the Spirit is our ruler. Christ doesn't take us away from the law. Actually, Christ helps us to keep the law, fulfill the law. This is the joyful walk of the Christian life. We come back next week. We're going to see the for a while section. We're going to see the life of the unbeliever who's living under the tyranny of the law and with no ability to keep it. We'll begin that next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the truths that you've revealed to us here, for the riches of this timing to come to this text, to these things at this time in our ministry life, for us to wrestle through and think about. We just pray that the result would be that we would have a greater appreciation for the work of Christ, a greater appreciation for the gospel of God, a greater appreciation for the righteousness of God, so that we would love your holy law, love the truth. We are thrilled to know we have been set freed from the law and died to it. And yet that has not moved us away from you. It's actually moved us closer to you. That through your spirit and by your grace and walking in Christ Jesus, we are made righteous. We are conformed in our outward what is true about us positionally. And we are perfectly righteous before you. So help us to understand these things so we walk precisely and carefully on your scriptures so that in all things you would be honored and glorified in us and through us. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.